Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To my bed crimers, hi, how are you? I hope you're having a wonderful day. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. All I ask is that after listening to and or watching the video, if you find you enjoyed it, learned something, do me a favor, smash the like button, and please consider subscribing. And if you want to help me survive on these harsh YouTube streets, please consider a membership or a Patreon membership. I keep the price low at $1.99 because I know money is tight. With all that out of the way, let's get started. Hello there. How you all doing? Hope you're having a great day. To better understand how law enforcement operates when they're about to make arrests, in a big murder case like that of Dan Markell. I thought I'd share how co-conspirators Sigfredo Garcia and Catherine McBanawa found themselves suddenly surrounded by officers and then thrown in the clink. The first arrest related to Danny Markell's murder came in late May of 2016, two years after the crime. It took nearly 24 months for cops to finally get the evidence proving Luis Rivera and Sigfredo Garcia were the guys who trailed Markel from his gym to his home on Friday, July 18th of 2014, and we know what happened after that. Latin King leader Rivera, a.k.a. King Tato, was already in prison doing a 12-year sentence for another crime. Now, ironically, Rivera would be the person to roll on his best friend, Sigfredo Garcia, and Garcia's on-again, off-again girlfriend, Katie McBanawa. As a Latin king, Rivera would have lived by a set of rules, and one of them would have been that you don't rat on your friends. But without his plea deal, Luis Rivera would have been spending his life in prison. He received only seven years added to his existing 12-year sentence for his role in Dan Markell's death. Rivera had children, and he really wanted to get out of prison to be able to see them. And he wasn't necessarily a killer by nature. He was somebody who would go and rough up drug dealers to steal their money. Now let's chat a little bit about Zigfredo Garcia's arrest in 2016. Tuesday, May 24th, was a hot, humid day in Miami. Sigfredo Garcia and Katie McBanawa's daughter, Kaylee Cecilia Garcia, was full of joy, anticipating her upcoming fourth birthday. Kaylee was especially excited because in two days, her whole family, including her mom, her dad, her older brother Ethan, and other relatives, were going on a three-and-a-half-hour road trip in their black Lexus to Disney World. It was a fairy tale come true for little Kaylee. But FBI agent Pat Sanford and Tallahassee PD detective Craig Isom also had special plans for that week, plans that were about to destroy Kaylee's highly anticipated date with Mickey Mouse and Snow White. On that Tuesday morning, Sanford and a female FBI agent visited Rapid Capital Funding, a small Miami company dealing in consumer loans. Sigfredo Garcia had a legitimate job there and was working as a senior funding analyst. 
Hard to believe the trigger man in Dan Markell's death had a real job in 2016 and a fancy title. The officers showed their badges at the front desk, just like they do in the movies, and they were escorted back to Garcia's desk. At the exact same time, Detective Isom and a male FBI agent were knocking on the front door to Garcia's and McBanawa's townhome. Isom and the agent were in plain clothes so as not to give away their profession. Katie was inside the townhome alone. Paranoid, she was keeping herself hidden from view. Katie could see the two men from her kitchen window, and she had a gut feeling they weren't selling religion or Girl Scout cookies. And in the backyard, the family dog, Thunder, was barking up a storm. Were there officers approaching from the rear at the same time? Now, over at Rapid Capital Funding, Pat Sanford was conducting an interview with Sigfredo. Sanford asked Garcia if he knew a guy named Luis Rivera. Garcia, who was already on the defensive, replied he knew about 19 people with that same name. Sounds like an answer that Wendy Adelson would give on the stand. Sanford then said, quote, We got some information about something that happened a couple of years ago, and your name popped up in it. Have you ever been to Tallahassee? End quote. Now, Garcia, who was likely reeling inside his head at this moment, said, No, I have not. Sanford then asked, Do you know who Dan Markell is? Hearing that name probably struck absolute terror in Garcia's heart. He responded, It doesn't sound like anyone I know. When asked if he'd ever taken a trip up north, Garcia proclaimed, None whatsoever. Sanford, likely trying to mess with Garcia's head, stated he simply was trying to get Garcia's side of the story, but he wasn't at liberty to reveal any information about the investigation. Garcia then blurted out, That doesn't seem fair. And then he added, I don't know if I should say anything more than I want to say, but... I mean, if I can help, obviously I'd be more than happy to, end quote. I'm thinking Garcia now was maybe thinking that Luis Rivera had been singing in the Huskow. But Sanford made it clear to Garcia that he wasn't under arrest and that his participation in the chat was voluntary. Sanford ended with, we got some information and we're trying to find out if that information is even right at all without ruining your life here, end quote. Upon hearing that statement, Garcia returned to the question about whether or not he'd ever traveled up north. Garcia replied, sort of, I travel to Orlando, I go to Disney, end quote, and sure enough, that is north of Miami. Sanford then asked Garcia if his nickname is Tuto. Garcia acknowledged it is. Sanford followed up with, Do you know Rivera as Tato? Garcia said he knows a Tato, but he also stated his uncle is called Tato as well. Garcia, despite being pressed for more information about Rivera, told the agents he didn't think it was wise to keep talking to them at his workplace. 
So Sanford asked Garcia if he'd be willing to meet at his FBI office to continue the conversation. Now that's when Garcia stated that he wouldn't do that without an attorney, obviously. Garcia ended up saying that unless they were going to arrest him and take him to jail, the conversation was over. Sanford then revealed that someone called them and provided information about his involvement in a homicide up in North Florida. And Sanford then asked again if Garcia ever heard about Dan Markell. By now, Zigfredo had to be sweating, but he did his best to appear surprised and replied no. He then insisted that to chat further, he would need to speak with his lawyer, a lawyer he hadn't yet found or hired. That was going to be on his to-do list right after those law enforcement officers walked out of the door of his workplace. Now, back at the townhouse, Katie was pacing around and pretty much freaking out. She had a pretty good feeling why those men were knocking on the door, because one month earlier in April of 2016, someone had approached Charlie Adelson's mother, Donna, in an operation called The Bump. That person gave Donna an article about Dan Markell's murder with $5,000 written on it, along with a phone number. Unbeknownst to Donna at the time, it was an undercover FBI agent. After The Bump, Charlie Adelson called Katie, so Katie knew people other than the co-conspirators were aware of the crime and who might have been behind it. Back to Katie at her townhome. As she's pacing, the phone rings. It's Zigfredo's cell phone, but it's one of his co-workers named Mike Perez. Mike is calling to let Katie know that Sigfredo was busy talking to what appeared to be the feds. Katie tells Perez about these men outside the door, and he tells her to chill out, don't answer the door, and he says, you know, they're going to need a warrant to get in, so don't worry about it. And as Katie's talking to this Mike Perez, she's whispering because she doesn't want the men outside to hear what she's saying. But unbeknownst to her, they had wiretapped her number so they could hear everything she was saying. Perez offers to drive by the townhouse to try and see who's at the door. Ten minutes later, Perez calls Katie back and he tells her that he's certain that the two men are plain clothes FBI agents. At that point, Katie fears that the agents are going to knock her door down. But Perry again advises Katie to lay low. Don't worry. They need a warrant to knock the door down. You're okay for now. After she hangs up, Garcia calls her and he tells her what just happened at work. He tells her that the agents told him that someone had called in a tip. Garcia then also reassures Katie, telling her that they need a warrant to come into the home, and he says, we'll talk more about it when I get home from work. After he hung up, Garcia made many calls to secure a lawyer, and later that day, Siegfredo drives to Walmart, and he buys two burner phones, one for himself and one for Katie. Later, when FBI agents try to contact Siegfredo and Katie on their old cell phones, neither one of them answers. With agents keeping a tight watch on the townhome, they soon spot Garcia and McBanawa leaving their home 
in their Lexus. From then on out, no one was home except for Thunder. Later, some of the couple's friends come by and they pick up the dog. The next night, Garcia returns to the townhome. He packs up some suitcases. He puts them in the Lexus. He drives away and he heads north on Interstate 95. He is going to Katie's brother's house in Tamarack, where she is waiting with the kids. Now, about halfway to his destination, Siegfredo stops at an Exxon gas station. And the minute he opens his car door, 10 law enforcement vehicles appear out of nowhere and they surround the infamous Lexus. Garcia is yanked out of the car, thrown to the pavement, handcuffed, and read his rights. Despite being arrested 20 times before, Garcia is shocked because he's never witnessed anything like this before. Of course, he'd never committed the big M before either. When the cops search the Lexus, they find 50 $100 bills and a small bag of white powder. Garcia is then taken to jail, and now the trip to Disney is off. You have to wonder, like, how did Katie explain this to her four-year-old daughter? I mean, there had to be so many tears. Can you imagine a kid waiting to meet Mickey Mouse, and then suddenly the trip is called off? And how do you continue to celebrate her birthday when her father has just disappeared, and unbeknownst to her, he's in jail? Now, fast forward five months later to October 1st of 2016. Again, it's a warm and muggy day in Miami. Katie McBanawa starts it out by watching Kaylee perform in a ballet recital. I find it fascinating that Katie and Siegfredo had their daughter enrolled in ballet. I mean, just like two years earlier, they were involved in a heinous crime and here's Katie sitting with all the other dance moms watching this recital, watching her little girl in pink tights and a black leotard. It's just such a strange contrast. After the recital, Katie drops Kaylee off at Siegfredo's sister's apartment. Katie had errands to run at a nearby strip mall. When she's done shopping for clothes for Kaylee and Ethan, Katie opens the trunk of the Lexus, puts the shopping bags inside, hits the button to close the trunk, gets into the car, and begins driving toward the exit. But as she's approaching the exit, Katie finds herself stuck behind a whole bunch of traffic. Then, suddenly, what looks like an army of officers start coming toward her from every direction, with guns drawn. Katie puts the car in park, and she sits there frozen, freaking out, unable to move. An officer comes over, opens the car door, screams, Get out! 31-year-old Katie was terrified, so terrified that as she steps out, urine begins flowing down her leg. FBI agent Pat Sanford and Detective Craig Issam tell her that she's under arrest for Dan Markell's murder. Katie asks right away if she can call her attorney, and she's allowed to. So it sounds like Siegfredo hooked her up with an attorney when he got one for himself. She was then transported to jail. And as Isom is standing in the mall's parking lot, his phone begins to vibrate. 
He answers it, and he hears the voice of a lawyer named David Marcus, who was then representing Charlie Adelson. Marcus had found out about Katie's arrest, and he told Detective Isom that if he had a warrant for Charlie, there would be no need to ambush Charlie like they had just done with Katie. Marcus said Charlie would voluntarily surrender in Tallahassee. Isom told Marcus, thank you, and he said he'd think about it. That is so strange because to me it almost sounds like an admission of guilt on Charlie's part, or at least Charlie's lawyer's part. And it's also strange how Detective Isom didn't say, well, yeah, bring him straight here. Let's, you know, let's have him turn himself in. Perhaps they weren't ready to pull the plug on Charlie because they didn't have enough evidence yet lined up. Because once you arrest somebody and you charge them for something like murder, you know if they say they're not guilty that a trial has to take place fairly quickly. Now, Garcia and McBanawa were both denied bail, and they haven't spent a night as a free person again since that time. Garcia was convicted in 2019 for his role as the trigger man in Dan Markell's death. McBanawa was also found guilty at her second trial after her first trial ended in a hung jury. Both Sigfredo and Katie were sentenced to life in prison. I'm wondering now who is currently taking care of Siegfriedo and Katie's kids. Haley, I believe, would be 12, and I think Ethan is 20 right now. It's probably their mothers. I, they both had good mothers, both meaning Siegfriedo and Katie. So that's probably where the children have been living over the past however many years. The only people I can muster sympathy for in this case are the Markells and all of the children, not just Dan Markell's sons, but also Siegfredo and Katie's children, Rivera's children. Katie did play a pivotal role in the case by hooking up Charlie Idelson with Sigfredo Garcia, and also by pressuring Sigfredo into doing the job. Sigfredo caved to Katie's pressure and then did the unthinkable by ambushing a loving father in the sanctuary of his own garage. For them, it was all about the money, although I also think that Katie wanted to please Charlie. There's a saying, marry for money and you'll pay. And now I'm saying, murder for money, and you'll pay even more. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.